I will be the first to admit to being drawn to the biggest, most awesome statuary in a cemetery. I love the angels, the seven virtue statues, the monuments, tree stones, but sometimes you just gotta dig a little deeper and follow the stories to find what lies beneath. And what we found this day was a soldier, a pioneer banker, an empire builder. His story was fascinating, and I'll share it with you next on Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Hi friends and taffophiles, I'm your host Lachelle. I'm back with my co-host and editor extraordinaire, Taylor. Welcome Tay. I'm back. <laughs> Taylor used to live just outside of Dallas, Texas, and now she's back to Arizona, which makes her mama happy. <laughs> but while she was there, she found this great little cemetery called Greenwood in Dallas. Yeah, so we actually accidentally stumbled upon it when it was my birthday and we were spending time in Dallas mm -hmm. and we were driving to a restaurant and my husband Marcus looked out the window and he said oh, look at that cemetery and I looked over <laughs> and you could just tell from driving past it yeah. it was gorgeous there's statues everywhere so when you first actually go in to Greenwood Cemetery it's beautiful in Dallas it's so humid and there's so much moisture in the air that everything is green mm. and everything grows really well, but it's kept up at the same time. So there's not yeah. like weeds everywhere. It's just bushes, trees everywhere and lots of, yeah, grass and flowers. Gorgeous. So it was one of my very favorite things. There is a lot of moss on mm -hmm. the stones. So that does... That's is hand in hand with uh, the moist weather yeah. and so the it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful, but there is moss on most of the mm -hmm. tombs that you go to. So when you first drive in, on the left-hand side is this pretty brick building where I think they do most of the maintenance. And on the opposite side, there's a sign. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what that says. So I walked up to it. This is what it says. It says, Greenwood Cemetery was part of a Republic of Texas grant called the John Grigsby League, given for service in the Battle of San Jacinto. W.H. Hmm. Gaston, pioneer Dallas banker, acquired title to the site in 1874 and founded Trinity Cemetery. Greenwood Cemetery Association assumed operation in 1896. Many people prominent in the histories of the city, state, and nation rest here. In addition to casualties and veterans of every American military involvement since the war between the states. Mm. So that piqued, yeah, that piqued my interest. Of course, I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, all the history, sign me up. Yes. So as I was doing research about the cemetery before I went... I actually had discovered that a lot of people buried there have a significant role in making Dallas 
what it is today. Mm -hmm. Making it the big city. There are also a lot of soldiers there, like it says in mm -hmm. the sign. I found a couple from the First World War, and then I think there is actually one for World War II. So today we decided to talk about one specific Texan who played a big part in making Dallas what it is. Mm -hmm. So the person we're going to talk about today is the man that actually founded the cemetery. So his name is William Henry Gaston. William was born October 25th, 1840 in Alabama to Robert and Letitia Gaston. William was their second born son. The first was George, who was two years older than William. When he was a year old, his family moved to Mississippi, settling on a farm there. Letitia had another son named Robert, after their father, then a daughter, Mary Priscilla, and another son, John. They stayed in Mississippi for another eight years, at the end of which it's said that his father received a letter from an old neighbor who had moved to Texas. That neighbor praised the area around Palestine and did such a good job selling the area that in September 1849, Robert Gaston Sr. sold his Mississippi farm, packed up his belongings, and headed for Texas with his wife and kids. William was nine years old at the time. Their goods were transported in three wagons while the family rode in a one-horse carriage. The trip took about six weeks. The family would camp out in tents every night as they traveled. So Palestine is actually not that far from Dallas. I think it's like an hour and a half okay. away from Dallas. When the Gastons finally reached Palestine, Texas, they met a man named John Reagan who invited them to stay at his home until the family were able to get on their feet. In December 1849, Robert Gaston Sr. bought 320 acres of land near the small town of Plenitude in Anderson County. So upon further research, I actually found out that Plenitude doesn't exist anymore. I don't know why. It basically just hmm. says that everyone packed up their stuff and left. Like, I think some major businesses closed down and they just couldn't keep up. But that it's just not there anymore. It's not named something else. It's just, it's just gone. Ghost town. Yeah. The family lived there for the next 10 years. They added baby James and Henrietta during these years. There, the Gaston children attended school at the Mound Prairie Institute. Two of their classmates there were the furlough girls, Laura and Ione, who were to play an important role later on in William's life. And he wasn't fond of school, but he was good at arithmetic. Many accounts say that he could add, subtract, multiply, and divide six-digit numbers in his head. Can you imagine? I can barely uh, do two-digit numbers in no. my head. <laughs> he could do six-digit numbers. No, no, no. That's insane. Every once in a while, someone will say, what can't you do to me? And I'm like, math. math. <laughs> Agreed. He do, do lots either. of things, but math, mm -mm. not one of them. William Gaston loved his life on the farm. From an early age, he was very fond of the animals. Mm. He took great pleasure in hitching calves to a sled and being pulled around the farm. <laughs> Cute as that. <laughs> Throughout his life, he loved to hunt and fish, and that would continue on well into his old age. I found lots of accounts talking about how he would always take like his sons and his son-in-laws out hunting and fishing. Like that was just the cool. thing that everyone realized that William loved to do. 
While the family lived in plentitude, William's father, Robert, served two terms in the Texas legislature. So at this time, Dallas was starting to grow quite a bit, and Robert Sr. was impressed at what he saw. So he decided to move to Dallas in 1860, and he left William to tend the homestead with his brothers and sisters yeah. and to help his mother. Event. So I'm going to go up to Dallas, yeah. and y'all just take care of the Have fun! <laughs> you have fun with all the See kids. Next month. Yeah. Eventually, the whole family started their trip to Dallas as well. They had to stop for a time in Mount Sylvan, which is just right outside of Tyler, Texas. Okay. But they had to stop because a number of their slaves contracted typhoid fever. So because of that, they couldn't move. And for those of you that don't know, typhoid fever is caused by bacteria called Salmonella typhi. So is that like salmonella poisoning? Yeah, it says it basically comes from contaminated food. So basically it is salmonella poisoning. It just makes you violently ill mm-hmm. from both ends. Well, that sounds like food poisoning. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think it's a little bit worse on the end mm-hmm. of food poisoning. On the end end of food poisoning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh <my> gosh. <laughs> uh, yes. But it was known to be one of the worst diseases that they had. So several of their um, slaves actually died because of it. Um, So then when the bout with typhoid was finally over, it was practically winter. So Robert Gaston actually decided to rent a home there in Mount Sylvan instead of moving everyone to Dallas at that time with winter coming. So the idea of moving to Dallas was going to be the following spring instead. They just had to wait out winter basically. So then, after a while, Robert then decides to stay and to settle there in Smith County near they liked Tyler. It. They liked it. For his death in 1881, he represented the county twice in the Texas legislature. Again, he served two terms. Very cool. So altogether, he served four terms in the Texas legislature for different counties. The sons, William, Robert, and George, all enlisted in the Confederate Army in 1861. William and Robert as privates in a volunteer unit called the Texas Guards or Anderson County Invincibles, and their brother George was enlisted in Tyler. The unit William and Robert joined at Palestine contained 90 men and was commanded by Captain Alexis Theodosius Rainey. That's a name. That's a name. That's a mouthful. A Palestine lawyer who had previously been a member of the Texas Senate. A book called William Henry Gaston, A Builder of Dallas by Ralph Widener Jr. says, The new recruits spent 10 days drilling on the prairie near Magnolia, Texas, at the end of which time William was promoted to the rank of first sergeant and Robert to a fourth corporal. The unit then marched to Shreveport, where they boarded a boat for New Orleans, where they were officially mustered into service as Company H, 1st Texas Infantry Regiment, Confederate States of America, better known as a part of John Bell Hood's Texas Brigade. One hour after being mustered into service, the outfit boarded an open flat car train which took them to Huntsville, Alabama, where they were put on a regular passenger train for the remaining trip to Richmond, Virginia. At Richmond, They camped out at the old fairgrounds, drilling daily so that they would be ready when needed at the front. 
William must have been pretty impressive because he was soon elected captain of his company, and his company became part of the Army of Northern Virginia. Being elected captain means that he was chosen by his fellow soldiers to lead them into battle, which was a sign of great respect and confidence that his peers trusted him with their lives. Mm -hmm. Very different from how the military works today. Also, you may have noticed that the 90 men that joined the army at Palestine were all in the same regiment. So they would have known William and so trusted him. You can see how having a troop of young men from the same area could be both a blessing and a curse, so to speak. On the one hand, they knew and trusted each other. They would fight hard for their friends and neighbors as they fought side by side. But you can also see that if they were in a particularly rough battle and lost most of their unit, an entire town's young men population could be taken out at once. That's awful. I hadn't yeah. totally thought of that before yeah. we were writing this episode and how, and actually my husband pointed it out to me that at this time in our history, they would take all of the young men from one town and they would be a regiment, but they had battles like we're going to talk about later where... Like, like tons said, of men just died. And entire yeah. towns worth of young men and young husbands were completely taken out. And it yeah. was just devastating for a town. So now you're in a yeah. regiment with, you know, this guy from New Jersey, this guy from California, this guy yeah. from Washington, this guy from Texas. And then if something terrible happens, at least it's not spread out. Yeah. It's awful. It's not a whole way, town having to deal with the death. death of all their boys. Yeah. Captain William Gaston and his brigade would be under General Lee. William was known as the boy captain and commanded his company with distinction through the battles in Virginia in 1862. Aww, the boy captain. The boy captain. He was young. He was young. Hood's Texas Brigade fought in at least 24 battles in 1862, including Eltham's Landing, Gaines Mill, Second Manassas, and Sharpsburg. Sharpsburg, a terrible battle that the Texas boys fought in, and a day that would change everything. In historian Shelby Foote's book, The Civil War and Narrative, he tells how the night before the battle, Hood went to General Lee and told him that his men were near to exhaustion, having received only half a ration of beef in the past three days. He requested that they be withdrawn from the line to get some rest and fry some bacon and dough. Distressed, though he was to hear that his shock brigades were enfeebled, he was obliged to admit, <laughs> such a southern way of saying it, <laughs> he was obliged to admit that he had no others to put in their place. He then sent Hood to see Stonewall Jackson. He nudged him awake and told him what he wanted. Jackson had already rearranged his line, shifting troops around to the north and west to meet the attack that he knew would come at dawn against the stretches of woodland and the cornfield in between, but he agreed to spread them thinner in order to give Hood's hungry soldiers a chance to cook their rations, provided they were kept close at hand and ready to come running when he called. Hood agreed, and around midnight, 
his two brigades fled southward to kindle their cook fire in the Dunkirk churchyard. In the morning, the peace was shattered by the crack of musket fire, shell and canister. After a time across the cornfield lay every broadleaf stalk of corn, along with dismembered heads and limbs of men. Yikes. Men were knocked out of ranks by the dozen. Just as the Union thought that the Dunker Church was within their reach, a column of men emerged from the woods and bore down on them yelling. At point-blank range, the rebels pulled up short, delivered a volley, which one receiver said was like a scythe running through our line, and then came on again, the sunlight glinting and snapping on their bayonets. It was Hood. Jackson had called for him while his men were preparing their first hot meal in days. And perhaps that had something to do with the violence of their assault. <laughs> hey, I'd be angry too if I was about to eat for the first time in days bacon. and somebody said, Yeah, bacon, of all things. They're making bacon. They're making bacon and dough and they're like, Biscuit, we need you to come help out. I'd be like, You know what? F this. We gotta, we gotta yeah. get this done right now so I can eat some AF. dinner. I'd be cranky. <laughs> Got some hangry men up in there. They were angry. <laughs> that is the perfect way to say it. So leaving their half-cooked food in their skillets, they formed ranks and charged the bluecoats who were responsible <laughs> for the interruption of their <laughs> breakfast. Hood and his men struck the Federals north of Dunker Church and drove back through the cornfield, whooping and jeering, calling for them to stand and fight. They finally did at the edge of the field behind their guns and the two lines engaged. With only 2,400 men in his two brigades, Hood knew that he would not be able to hold on for long in the face of those guns, but he was determined to do what he could. Hood's men were exposed to murderous fire. The 1st Texas Infantry, that's our boys we're talking about, lost 186 of 226 men in the bloodbath, the steepest casualty rate for any regiment during the war. Overall, Hood lost nearly 1,400 of his men in less than an hour. Where is your division, an officer asked him after. Dead on the field, he replied. Quote, the slain lay in rows precisely as they had stood in their ranks a few minutes before. General Hooker wrote about the fight. It was never my fortune to witness a more bloody, dismal battlefield. End quote. Sad. You can't even imagine the horror that that is. No. Unless you've been in a war, you just cannot comprehend. Yeah. We can watch all the movies we want. We can yeah. read all the books we want. But we cannot imagine. Yeah. Kudos to all you servicemen that are out there. We're that very grateful. Protect our country because, whew, yeah, that's a lot for people to handle. A truce was called the next day in light of more than 23,000 casualties in total. The ultimate tragedy of this bloodiest day was that it did not end the Civil War and its dreadful carnage. Claire Barton organized a private relief agency to assist the sick and wounded of the Army of the Potomac. She established a field hospital at Sharpsburg and Antietam. Sometimes it's called Sharpsburg and sometimes it's called Antietam. Antietam. And that's because the South called it Sharpsburg and the North called it Antietam. Hmm. So almost all of the battles have two names. 
depending on which side you were oh, on. brother. So it would have to do with, you know, a town or a stream or... Of course, because why wouldn't we agree on anything? That's what this whole war is about, you exactly. know, is not agreeing on anything. So so if you hear Sharpsburg, it also means Antietam. The things you learn. She pushed her wagons past stalled federal supply trains to arrive at a barn near the cornfield at about noon. Under fire, Barton set about recovering and treating the wounded. Quote, a man lying upon the ground asked for a drink. I stooped to give it, and having raised him with my right hand, was holding the cup to his lips with my left. When I felt a sudden twitch of the loose sleeve of my dress, the poor fellow sprang from my hands and fell back quivering. In the agonies of death, a ball had passed between my body and the right arm which supported him, cutting through the sleeve and passing through his chest from shoulder to shoulder. There was no more to be done for him, and I left him to his rest. I have never mended that hole in my sleeve. I wonder if a soldier ever does mend a bullet hole in his coat. Unquote. That's crazy. So just the space between holding up the guy with her arm and her body, so what, like eight inches or something, yeah. the bullet went right between her body and her arm and hit the poor man. Through the shoulders and went, on the way out? Yeah, so went clear through his body. The heck? That's just crazy. Either that guy that shot him was a very good marksman, or he was just letting bullets fly. Because I don't know how else he would. That's just crazy luck. There's a book with letters from William and Robert Gaston, written to their father during the war. It is called Tyler Sharpsburg, and it's edited by Robert Glover. So the whole thing is just letters that these boys have written to their father. That's all it is. So there's no other writing... It's just the letters from the boys. It would be a really cool read. It sounds fascinating. I would it like does. to read it. Much of the information that we know about the encampments in the Confederacy mm-hmm. came from those letters that the boys wrote to their father. These we very boys that we are talking about. These very boys that we're talking about. Full circle. So I was actually able to find one such letter online. On 28th November, 1862, William wrote to his father... I received your letter of the 5th November a few days ago, but have not had opportunity of writing until now. I am surprised at you not receiving my letters written after the Sharpsburg fight. I cannot see why my letters should not reach home as soon as others. I wrote you soon after the fight and gave you all the information I could about Robert. I have been inquiring and hunting for him ever since he was lost. I can hear nothing from him. I feel that he was slain, although I cannot give him up yet. There is some chance for him to be alive yet. He may have been badly wounded and still in the hands of the enemy. There has been some of my boys sent back to Maryland that I thought was killed. They saw nothing of Robert, but say he may be there somewhere as our boys were scattered all over Maryland. I hope he may turn up yet someday. I have felt miserable since he's been gone, and it is with deep regret that I have to communicate his loss to you. I hope you all will not think hard of me for not giving you all the particulars of his fate when it was out of my power, and as my letters failed to reach you. We were overpowered by the enemy and compelled to give up the battlefield, leaving behind our killed and wounded with some prisoners, and were not permitted to go to the field after the fight. 
Consequently, I cannot tell the result of the missing. We are not lying in sight of the Yankee tents, only the Rappahannock River behind us. May expect a fight any day, but I do not think they will attempt to cross this winter. The weather is very cold, but we stand it well, have plenty of clothes, some shoes wanting. Our boys are in fine health, and our army is in good condition. We expect to go into winter quarters shortly. I intend to come home this winter if I can. I may have to resign to do so, but I intend to come. My health has not been so good for some time, and I think I have tried it long enough here to satisfy me. <laughs> you spoke of coming here. I would advise you not to come, as you cannot accomplish anything by the trip. If Robert can be found, I will find him before I come. If killed, we will have to give him up for a time. I think it my duty to come home a while at least. Excuse my writing with pencil, as ink is scarce in camp. Write to me often. I will do the same. I close. This from your son, W.H. Gaston. After reading about Robert from the letter, I dug into his disappearance. So this is Robert Jr. This is mm -hmm. his brother. Yes, this is the brother. At the Battle of Sharpsburg, or Antietam, as the Union referred to it, on September 17, 1862, Lieutenant Robert H. Gaston was killed in action, dying on the battlefield. He was buried there in Maryland. His body was later buried in the grounds at Washington Confederate Cemetery. Robert was 18 years old. Aww. Yeah. Oh. So sad. It's just heart-wrenching. After reading and hearing about the part where that unit stormed across that cornfield of other men dead and dying yeah. and had to go face that union mm -hmm. side and he died one of those men yeah. right there in that cornfield and it's just awful that they didn't even know for sure you yeah. know if he died or not like there was just no word from him mm. at all that just makes me want to weep it's I know it's so, so awful and we can only imagine the heartbreak for William losing his younger brother that way he must have felt a responsibility for him as his older brother and as his captain. To this day, Sharpsburg produced the bloodiest single day as far as U.S. casualties in American history. And actually, my husband Brad has a third great uncle who fought under General Stonewall Jackson in the same battle as well, and also lost his life there. Mm. It was a catastrophic battle for all involved. It's unknown if William Gaston actually did participate in Sharpsburg. Mm -hmm. It's thought that he wasn't because he had come down with typhoid fever. There it is again, typhoid fever, one of those recurring illnesses. And it was thought that he was still recovering when Sharpsburg was happening. He wasn't so, well enough to be in the battle. Yeah, so it was like his unit went, but he Ugh. couldn't be there with them, which is awful. Also heartbreaking for him. Yes, and having typhoid fever, however miserable it was, may have actually saved William's life, which is awful to think about, but it saved him from that awful battle and possibly dying. After recovering from typhoid, he was sent to Texas on recruiting duty for the regiment. Gee, I wonder why they needed new recruits. Yeah. Mm. While on leave, he married Laura Furlow. Sound familiar to you? <laughs> Went on furlough? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was the little girl that he had gone to school with. Yes. It was one of the, the girls that he had met. 
He went on furlough and married furlough. There you go. <laughs> he was subsequently reassigned to serve as Confederate purchasing agent in the Trans-Mississippi Department, where he spent the remainder of the war. That was another blessing. Yes, it was. On December 4th, 1862, he resigned from the military. In January 1863, William's older brother, First Lieutenant George Gaston, died as well. Another casualty of the war. The 13th Cavalry, which George was in, along with the full division, was ordered to Pine Bluff, Arkansas. On the 11th, Walker received orders to reinforce Arkansas Post, a fortress defending the Arkansas River. After a forced march, it was learned that the Post had surrendered on the 12th. 4,791 prisoners had been captured. The 13th and other regiments of Walker's division were then directed to construct defensive earthworks near Pine Bluff to counter the threat that the Union forces would continue up the Arkansas River. I actually looked up what earthworks was because mm -hmm. um, I had no idea because I don't know these things. It's basically, I think it's called a lenit, and what it is, it's like a arch kind of shape that's pointed at the top, and it's, you build it up with, like, earth and whatever oh, else you can find, airports. and that's where you put, like, your cannons, like, directed mm -hmm. on all sides. It's like a post up, almost, so you have a place to shoot, and something coming this way, <laughs> which no one can see. <laughs> People that are coming straight on... Mm -hmm. they would, you know, have to go around this big thing in order to get to you. Okay. So it's like a defensive war tactic. Snow and freezing weather plagued the regiment, causing the loss of First Lieutenant George Gaston of Company D and Private John Mitchell of Company K to exposure. The Union threat did not materialize, and the division was moved into winter quarters near Pine Bluff. Poor George, he died of exposure. Isn't that awful? Like, you fight this war, you didn't even die in the war. You died of exposure. Freezing, that sounds awful. He was buried there at the time, and then later his remains were returned to Texas by his family and buried in a family cemetery in Denson Springs, Texas. George had been married to Mary Jane Polly Miller, with whom he had a daughter, Annie Eliza. He has a wife and a baby girl at home. Yeah. And he died oh. from exposure. I feel so bad for their parents. They lost two of their three sons that were in the war. It was good for all that William was able to retire and get out of the war. Seriously. After William's time in the military, he farmed in Anderson County till about 1867, during which William and his wife, Laura, had three children. Willie, who died in infancy... Edwin and Florence Laura. In 1867, William's wife Laura passed away. Aww. I couldn't find any information about how mm -hmm. she passed away, which is sad. But soon after, he married Laura's sister, Ione. Kind of interesting. It was hard in those days. If you lost a wife and you were a man, it wasn't like you could just hire a sitter, drop mm -hmm. them off at daycare. Yeah. It was really hard. You and needed a woman. I mean, who knows? Maybe he loved her. Yeah. <laughs> but someone he knew, she was single. She probably loved those little kids, and it just worked out. Yeah. And it's their aunt. They already know who she mm -hmm. is. They don't have to, like, get to know anyone new. probably better than a new person. Exactly. 
That year, he had a very successful cotton crop, so he took the money to Dallas. He went to Dallas on horseback when there was only 1,200 inhabitants. So Dallas was just a little tiny town at the time. William entered there into partnership with Aaron C. Camp, and they opened the Gaston and Camp Bank of Dallas, the first permanent bank in Dallas. Wow, that really was a good cotton crop. Yeah, it was. Within a short time, Gaston had also expanded into real estate and merchandising. Hmm. Only five years after his arrival, the Dallas Herald declared that William Gaston was most responsible for the transformation of Dallas into a city. He was said to be one of the city's first millionaires, and another of his banks, Gaston and Gaston Bank, was the predecessor of the Republic National Bank. Wow, he did well for himself. In just five years, it says that he transformed it into a city. Wow. William and Ione had four children, Robert Kirkpatrick, Frank Coleman, William Henry Gaston Jr., and Annie Ione. So William's two sets of kids were half-siblings and cousins. That's a little weird. I don't like thinking about that. <laughs> a little funny. <laughs> I mean, they did it the right way. They didn't do it in any sort of like incest, it wasn't weird. jewel kind of but, way. But it's still a little weird. They were also, they were siblings and cousins at yeah. the same time. <laughs> in 1874, William and his partner, W.H. Thomas, purchased land from John Cole and opened Trinity Cemetery. Before this, many people buried their family on their farms or in family graveyards. Trinity Cemetery was the first community cemetery in Dallas. In 1875, William also deeded five acres to the city for the burials of the indigent, which is very kind. Which is like poor people, for those of you that don't know what indigent means. (laughs) I had to look it up because I didn't know what it meant. (laughs) I was going to say, everyone knows that, Taylor. (laughs) Everyone knows that, but not Taylor. You know what that means. Taylor didn't know. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Many prominent families had bought plots in Trinity, including William's partner, W.H. Thomas, who is buried there. By 1896, the cemetery was in disrepair and was neglected. After a lot of criticism, a group called the Greenwood Cemetery Association formed and took over the care and operation. They then renamed it Greenwood. William H. Gaston's most notable achievement was his involvement in the development of the State Fair of Texas. When the fair was initially organized in 1886, Gaston spent $16,000 on 80 acres of land, which he then gave to the organization in exchange for stock. According to an article on the history of the Texas State Fair, the Dallas State Fair and Exposition was chartered as a private corporation on January 30, 1886 by a group of Dallas businessmen including W.H. Gaston, John S. Armstrong, and Thomas L. Marsalis. Differences arose among the directors over where to build the new fairgrounds. William Gaston proposed property in East Dallas, an 80-acre tract located within the modern boundaries of Fair Park. Strong opposition was voiced by C.A. Keating, speaking for the farm implement dealers. When no compromise could be reached, Keating and his supporters secured a charter for a separate event, the Texas State Fair and Exposition, which they announced would open just north of town on October 25th, one day ahead of the Dallas State Fair. 
So if we're not going to agree, we're just going to take our farm implements and go wow. over here. Wow. Exhibit facilities and a racetrack were built at each location, and both events attracted sizable crowds that fall. Attendance at the Dallas State Fair was estimated in excess of 100,000. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. But revenues for the fairs failed to meet expenses. The rival associations finally got their act together and <laughs> merged in 1887, becoming the Texas State Fair and Dallas Exposition. Despite debts of more than $100,000, the directors voted to expand the fairgrounds by purchasing 37 acres adjacent to the East Dallas site. The finest racing stock, cattle sales, concerts, balloon ascents, displays of farm machinery, contests for the ladies. What's a contest, What's a contest for the lady? Is it a beauty contest? Beauty contest or... I don't know. Homemaking contest. Oh, homemaking stuff. You know how they have like breads and jams and stuff. I bet that's what. (laughs) But I'm just like. But why did they word it that way? It was kind of weird. I guess it's a contest for the for the to get ribbons. Yeah, and appearances by such notables as John Philip Sousa, William Jennings Bryan, Carrie Nation, and Booker T. Washington brought thousands of Texans to the fair each year. But the popular success of the exposition was shadowed by repeated fires, mishaps, and more debt. A grandstand collapsed during a fireworks show in 1900. Oh my word. Oh, that sounds... It collapsed? Goodness. And the main exhibit building burned to the ground two years later. When the Texas legislator banned gambling on horse races in 1903, thus eliminating the fair's main source of income, the association faced a financial crisis. To protect this valuable community asset, the Texas State Fair spurned offers from developers and sold its property to the city of Dallas in 1904 under an agreement that set aside a period each fall to hold the annual exposition. As of 1904, William Gaston had spent $35,000 of his own money in ensuring the continuation of the organization. $35,000 $35,000 is a lot of money back then. It really was, yeah. I mean, it seems like it's not as much, but back then, whew, it's I can It's over 100 years ago. There's been a little bit of inflation. Mm, really? He also served as its president seven times. William wrote that he, quote, never sought notoriety for what he had done to keep the fair alive. And he felt that he could afford to rest with the consolation that he had helped to donate to the state of Texas, one of the grandest fairs in the United States. Oh, that's kind of cool. You don't really think about people that do stuff like that. Started a state fair. <laughs> you know, in our day, it's the state fair. Like they yeah, just, just have the a state fair. fair. Yeah. But he donated the land. Hmm. William H. Gaston died of pneumonia on January 24th of 1927. In his obituary, he was described as the discoverer of East Dallas and one of Dallas's first millionaires and city builders. So he got to live on Dallas's front porch. Uh, Well, Bonnie and Clyde, if you listen to that episode, (laughs) he lived on the devil's back porch in West Dallas. So we found an article about his funeral, and I thought this was really interesting. A few little points. 
It says, several hundred friends gathered Thursday afternoon at the home of Robert K. Gaston, and that would be his son, Mm -hmm. for the funeral services of Captain William Henry Gaston, 86, pioneer Dallas banker and one of the outstanding citizens of this city for more than half a century, who died at the home of his son, Robert K. Gaston, Monday night. Many of Captain Gaston's friends of the days when Dallas was a small town who worked with him in developing this city and commonwealth were present. Dr. William M. Anderson, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church, conducted the services. He spoke of the fact that Captain Gaston was one of the men who laid the foundation for the Dallas of today and of his high value as a citizen. Quote, His fine spirit, generous nature, and unselfish attitude made him a great host of admiring friends, Our great comfort in his loss are due to our Christian faith. We are satisfied about his safety. We have the right to expect from God the comfort and strength which belong to his children in every hour of sorrow. They sang, Nearer My God to Thee and Abide With Me. Those are both good songs. Mm -hmm. Were sung by Tom Fletcher. Dr. Anderson read the 23rd and 121st Psalm and part of the 21st chapter of Revelation. A profusion of floral offerings were banked about the casket. They covered the large lot in Greenwood Cemetery where he was buried. And that talks about his survivors, his family, surviving her three sons, Erwin, Robert, and W.H. Jr., which... I read that William Henry Gaston Jr. worked with him in the banking mm-hmm. industry. Yeah, probably in the Gaston and Gaston mm-hmm. bank that turned into the big bank go. that we have now. Mrs. Laura Gaston Finley of Detroit and Mrs. Annie Gaston Reeves of Princeton, New Jersey. And then his grandchildren. And then it tells a little bit about him as well. Anyway, so that's fun. I love when I can find articles about articles yeah people that lived in that time about the people that we're talking about Mm -hmm. so it's interesting to and i love how the writers had such flowery language yeah we don't (laughs) about the flowers even yeah flowery language about the flowers yeah (laughs) (laughs) he is buried in greenwood in his family plot along with his wife i own and all of their children and the plot is It's raised, it's like a a square, so you can see the outline of the family plot. Some of his sisters are buried there, some of his kids, and then like, there's a lot of family there that's buried. It's not a big, luscious plot. Like I said at the beginning, he had a lot of money, and he doesn't have the most outstanding yeah he could have had a huge statue made of himself right and many people do (laughs) and there's a guy that we'll talk about another time that actually did do that (laughs) but (laughs) that's for another story yeah but he seems like a very humble man because it's Mm -hmm. it's even a small headstone it's Mm -hmm. not a huge headstone there's no like amazing decorative things yeah. and the it biggest just thing, says his name and it just says his name the biggest thing that is there is it has two little steps 
I think it's two. It might be one or two steps that you walk up, and it just says his name at the bottom of the steps. And that is literally it. There's no other... Mm. I had the hardest time finding this man in the <laughs> cemetery. I had to, like, go around and around and around and around trying to find him. And that was because he had such a simple grave marker. So that's William Henry Gaston. That's an awesome story. Oh. I like him. He's and skin. we have pictures of the cemetery, and we have a picture of him... Mm-hmm. As a young man that is really handsome. And as an older gentleman. That we'll put on the website. So check out the blog. It's a good companion to the podcast because mm-hmm. then you can see the places that we're talking yeah. about and the cemetery. Maybe we'll post a few other pictures of the Greenwood Cemetery as well. Oh, yeah. And there's also different facts that sometimes we don't get to yeah. on the podcast because... You guys don't want to listen to a three-hour podcast, let's be honest here. <laughs> so there will be little tidbits that we have here and there or feelings yeah. that we had while we were there. So thank you, Taylor, for being my co-host again today. I always love it when I can have yeah. you on this side of the mic. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it was fun. I'll be back again. There's a lot more stories for Greenwood. It was a huge cemetery, so we'll be talking about it quite a bit. And that's the thing about cemeteries, is there are more stories than we could ever tell. And every person is interesting and has a story. And thus, the podcast. Amen to that. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners. Again. That combination of new lung power, changed voices, and boundless energy.